You are the brave, red pioneers of Mars. You do what we could not do. You suffer so that others will flourish. Always remember that obedience is the highest virtue. Investigators are focusing in on terrorist group the Sons of Ares, who's believed to be behind the bombing that claimed the lives of an entire mining crew and technician group yesterday. But it's winter well on the way, the drafters have a new favorite emerging. Darrow Al Andromedus and fellow House Dregs, the Howlers, led a punishing assault on Pat Al Telemannus and House Minerva today. We'll break it all down for you, coming up next. You're of use because you're more than a weapon. When your wife died, she didn't just give you a vendetta. She gave you her dream. You're its keeper. Welcome to Hail Reaper. Then I surprise him. I shove the switch into his hand and bring him close by cupping my hand around the back of his head. You deserve to have your balls off, you selfish bastard. I whisper to him. This is my army, I say more loudly. This is my army. Its evils are mine as much as yours, as much as they are Tactus's. Every time any of you commit a crime like this, something gratuitous and perverse, you will own it and I will own it with you. Because when you do something wicked, it hurts all of us. Tactus stands there like a fool. He's confused. I shove him hard in the chest. He stumbles back. I follow him, shoving. What were you going to do? I push his hand, holding the leather switch back toward his chest. I don't know what you mean, he murmurs, as I shove him. Come on, man. You're going to shove your prick inside someone in my army. Why not whip me while you're at it? Why not hurt me too? It'll be easier. Milia won't even try to stab you. I promise. I shove him again. He looks around. No one speaks. I strip off my shirt and go to my knees. The air is cold. Knees on stone and snow. My eyes lock with Mustangs. She winks at me, and I feel like I can do anything. I tell Tactus to give me twenty-five lashes. I've taken worse. His arms are weak, and so is his will to do it. It still stings, but I stand up after five lashes and give the lash to Pax. They start the count at six. Start over, I shout. The little rapist cur can't swing hard enough to hurt me. But Pax bloody well can. My army cries in protest. They don't understand. Golds don't do this. Golds don't sacrifice for one another. Leaders take. They do not give. My army cries out again. I ask them, How is this worse than the rape they were all so comfortable with? Is not Nyla now one of us? Is she not part of the body, like reds are? Like obsidians are? like all the colors are. Pax tries to go light, but it's Pax, so when he's done, my back looks like chewed goat meat. I stand up, 
do everything I can to prevent myself from wobbling. I'm seeing stars. I want to wail. I want to cry. Instead, I tell them that anyone who does anything vile, they know what I mean, will have to whip me like this in front of the entire army. I see how they look at Tactus now, how they look at Pax, how they look at my back. You do not follow me because I am the strongest, Pax is. You do not follow me because I am the brightest, Mustang is. You follow me because you do not know where you are going. I do. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 9 of Hail Reaper. My name is Philip, and this is my good friend Jeremy. What's up? Not much, man. Just finished an underwater basket weaving session. <laughs> what does that even mean? I don't know. And Tim is here. What's up, Tim? Tim's on his phone. He gives a peace sign. We <laughs> like the peace sign. It's good. Good sign. It's all about it. So <laughs> let's go and get the episode rolling. For sure. Nine weeks ago, we did an episode all about Red Dara. And you and I know that there's, there's a little bit of people have a difference of way of saying this. Some people say Daryl of Lycos. Some people say Daryl O Lycos, the real Irish version. Yeah, not everyone's right. <laughs> Which way do we go? Of. Daryl of Lycos. Yeah, for I'm, sure. I'm digging that. But we wanted to come back to Gold Daryl. We, we felt like we had to because the story has been, we've talked around him for a while, but his path, his journey has taken new shape in this moment. And we have to kind of drill in and reflect on it because this is who this character is now going forward, not just in the rest of this book, but the rest of this story. This moment shapes him like dramatically going forward. So I kind of want to just throw it to you and kind of get your broad feelings, your big feelings about this moment. And then we'll kind of drill into all the layers here. Dude, that that is a seriously epic moment. Yes. And Love it. it's just heavy. I And I know you and I have talked about this, um, you know, outside and prep and things like that. And and this is one of our, our favorite actual scenes or, or monologues or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's one of the best of the first book for sure, if not the best. Uh, you know, you spoke about it. We had seven other characters that we've talked about, you know, and they're kind of influencers. They're teachers of Darrow. They've given him something, you know, they've enabled him or something like that. And it's really this culmination of all of that. Mm-hmm. He is now able and is freed up to be the leader he needs to be. And there's utter confusion at this new type of leadership. I mean, yes, I love that part of it. You know, they just stare at him and, and he, yeah, they don't know what to do. And, you just see like, I mean, everything that goes on there. I, I think like for me, the best word to just simplify it mm-hmm. is just deeply satisfying. Yes. I love that. I love that word. You spoke that the other night and you're like that when we talked about it, we read it. We're like, this is so satisfying. And I want to kind of jump on that with you too. So satisfying for me too, as well for the, to the point where Darrow is not a character that I had a lot of affinity for. Um, a good character. I, I accepted like the, I accepted the fact that Pierce Brown built him to be the protagonist of the story. I kind of questioned why at some points, because I didn't find him necessarily super interesting, super compelling, just kind of, he's there and he's cool and he's got great attributes, but there's just a disconnect for me with him. Nothing that's really drawing me into him. And then this moment happens and I flip. And I flip so hard that it vaults me into the point now where I I hold him as a top three fictional character of yeah, all time. Sure. Like, I love Daryl, ride or die Daryl, team Daryl, like all the way in because of this. Mm-hmm. Again, I just said it a minute ago, but 
this is kind of the start of everything, like the new Darrow, the the Reaper. And you know, you and I kind of kind of internally have dubbed this scene like becoming the Reaper because, and we'll we'll talk about that more in a minute. But that's what we think really happens here: is he becomes something more. He, he embodies the idea of living for more within a practicality and practice itself. Let's kind of talk more about the Darrow side of it, uh, kind of what it means for him, and then we'll talk about what it means for other characters too. Yeah. So go ahead and kind of talk about the Darrow part. Yeah, for me, I mean, if you again, you're reading through this paragraph, you just have these sentence structures that are like, you know, he's assuming the guilt of his people. If they do something wrong, vile, grotesque, like they have to whip him as mm. punishment. Yeah. And you really have what's built up as this messianic figure. I mean, you have this in other pieces of literature too, you know, whether it's like Gandalf or Atticus Finch or mm. um, Harry Potter, even, yeah. you know, anything like that. Like Darrow's now being set up as that messiah. And and you even have that kind of confirmation from uh, Mustang that comes later on in the chapter where <laughs> you, you quote her better. Well, yeah, she actually says like, well, Darrow asks like after she's picking out the pieces of the whip out of his back and he's like, did it work? And she's like, sure, <laughs> messiah. Like, you know, she actually calls him that. Yeah, like, so absolutely. Pierce Brown isn't it's not a mistake like he actually makes a nod to him being a messianic figure within the literature itself yeah and you even have him going as far as like changing people into acolytes i mm -hmm. mean i i love the whole tactus spin on this yeah uh, you know tactus comes in as a hated character you know one that we yes. we don't like he does vile things and and yeah i mean you can you can look at it one way but he changes here in this mm -hmm. moment you know For he's sure. completely different so Derek does act as that messiah there's another thing that's happening here that i think is really cool it's like he's earning the nickname the reaper in a new way something that kind of wasn't really there before you know he he gets this nickname by the house series proctor um and it's purely kind of coincidence within the story but we know that pierce brown is doing this very intentionally and so and you know if you read the book you obviously know the connections you know that the reaper is a figure from the red religion and then you also know that the sling blade and the reaping scythe are two tools and that are they look and feel and uh, and have a similar aesthetic. Right. So there's that connection, that red and gold connection here, and he just happens to be holding a, a, a reaping scythe when uh, the moment that House our series Proctor is like, "Hey Reaper," and it's like, "Okay, cool, like he's the Reaper <laughs> now." But it kind of feels like it's just some sort of nickname, just a nickname only. Like I call Tim Timbo sometimes. I call you Jay for Jeremy. You That's call me. me P for yeah, and. <laughs> But it, they mean something. This means something more now going forward. You know, we talked about the Messiah, the Messiah crack that mm -hmm. Mustang makes. But she also says later, it's like you're something out of time. And that referring, it's like from this old story, like an old relic of the past. Like he's this old mythic hero. And that's what he becomes this moment, becomes a myth. Because you see all these kids standing around not having any understanding of what to do with this guy now. He's, he's, this, he's something new. Like the Reaper is like a heavy thing now there's reverence behind that nickname right not just like a another way to call you something there's like a new reverence added into it and is that me do you think i'm kind of gleaning too much from that or do you think that's like how you feel about it too no i i feel completely the same i mean i think you have the three levels right you kind of mentioned it you have the kind of folklore or religion mm -hmm. where you know he is the figure that basically ferries them uh, to the afterlife mm -hmm. you know and then you have kind of what he's become in the institute and that's kind of this bringer of death, the scary figure, and, and his moniker, again, gets carved into tables and walls and graffitied and, and all that kind of thing. But there's this third level, and it kind of has to, it goes hand in hand with, with the uh, messianic comment, right? Because 
we're, we're kind of talking in those religious aspects. And you kind of have this like uh, just proverb or, or biblical advice or something like that. And, and it's just like you reap what you sow. Yeah. You know, and what he sows in this moment is sacrificial love, leadership, and not just justice, but he actually sows mercy. Mm-hmm. And what he reaps out of that, again, I'm mean, those that word acolytes, you know? It's like a cult. They start, yeah, it's yeah. like he's like a cult leader in a yeah. way, you know? But <laughs> A cool cult. <laughs> yeah, but but they follow him like yeah. crazy. I mean, Tactus is a true believer of Darrow now. Yeah. And you, you even see this kind of moment later on with Nero where um, they're kind of talking about it. And, and Darrow's like, you don't understand. These guys will follow me wherever. And Nero kind of cracks back and he's like, hey, man, those are your summer camp friends. Like, yeah. you know, they might have signed your yearbook or something like that, <laughs> but they're not calling you again. Like, yeah. like they're they're piecing out on you. And yeah. and Darrow insists. He's like, no, you you truly don't understand what I'm talking about here. Like, yeah, these guys are with me. Yeah. We did it differently than you did it. And that can't be changed or altered. Like it's 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 set in stone. Like I I reaped what I sow. Um, let's talk about Tactus, because this this moment means a ton for him. Oh, and yeah. It's a character that I know we both really have a, a big affinity for. We both yep. like, despite how incredibly problematic that he is, because he is, he's very flawed. But I think to kind of do this in full, we have to kind of talk quickly about uh, who Tactus really is. And he's from the Jinn's Valley Irath family. His blood, his family name goes all the way back to the conquering, the start of this new society, this new civilization. And he has, because of his name and his bloodline, he has agency and power and respect and authority and wealth beyond, you know, pretty much only a few other families are on par with. Like yeah, for sure. Big time stuff. And he's a taker. His family are takers. And gold society at large are takers. That's they, how they gain is by seeing a weak enemy or whoever else and they grab it and they take it and it's, it's mine now. And it's so crazy because you see this model uh, that Darrow is kind of reaping, I guess, that is so counter to that. You know, he, we see Tactus try to take Nyla, the, the Seri student. And Darrow's like, no, you, you can't do that. You're, she's not a spoil of war. She's part of the body. She's, she's just like me. She's yeah. just like you. She's just like Mustang. This is epic stuff, like super epic. And so, you know, it's easy to look at this moment and just say like, well, Tactus looks like a fool because he's being scolded. And he is. He is being scolded by Darrow. But I think what's happening more is that Darrow is showing him a new model, because that's what the Institute is. The Institute is a smaller scaled down model of the larger society. Even Fitchner backs that up and says that early on. And his entire worldview gets completely flipped on its head. 100% 180 tactics is. He's always seen people gain that power, that authority, that respect, that whatever mm-hmm. by taking. And Darrow is saying, I can get all that by giving. And yeah. Tactus doesn't even know what to do with that. And like the other kids too, but he was the one that was made an example of. And this is why you and I love Tactus. Mm. To his credit, he sees that and says, I want in. I want to be a part of that. And that is so like huge. It's like it's very human. It's very human. And it that's is. that's why I like Pierce Brown, the way he portrayed Tactus, because he's a liar. He's a cheater. He's, he's a lot more than that. He's a, he's a rapist. Yeah. And... It's despicable on all aspects, not even trying to defend his actions, not even coming close. But at the same time, you see him, I guess, I mean, what would he use that? Apologize, repent even maybe mm-hmm. in this moment because of that. 
to kind of stick with the, you know, the religious messianic theme. Right. And he becomes sold out for Darrow in a way that you just wouldn't have expected from someone of that status, of that power. So it's not just merely someone being scolded or made an example of. It's someone, he's an acolyte of that new cult, of that new power. And it's just, it's heavy and weighty and cool. And I will always defend Tactus because he does that in this moment, but he does it in future moments, despite, again, more flaws and more failures. He comes back. Yeah, for sure. I'd second that. And I'd just say like, you know, even though we see him, and obviously we're going to try to avoid spoilers here because we always do, but you know, even though we see him flail and, and fail and, and struggle, um, he kind of, he never really turns completely against Darrow. Yes. You know, for the remainder of the series. And he always, in a way, I mean, people can argue this and stuff, but but I, I would argue that he stays true to Darrow. Yeah. No matter, yeah. I mean, he tries to actually go away from Darrow. Mm-hmm. He attempts to leave him, but he can't. Because he recognizes that not only how special Darrow is, but how special the worldview that Darrow brings into his life. And that is that, again, we can be better by giving and living for more than taking. Because that's what live for more means. Like if you really want to go back to EO and just kind of put a bow on this whole like <laughs> section, it's that Darrow is now saying what break the chains and what live for more are, are sacrifice. He learned that from EO because EO did that herself. Mm-hmm. She sacrificed, depending on how you look at it. I'm beginning to take more and more of the approach that she did do that as a noble sacrifice. My, yes. my, my mind is being changed on that. And he's doing the same thing, not in death, but pretty close. And then also um, to show that that's what it looks like. And that's how we're going to make the world better. Uh, lovely moment, beautiful moment. Uh, favorite moment in the book? Yeah, I know you, is it your favorite moment in the book? It's up there. I I don't know if I'd rate it as my ultimate favorite, but it's top three for sure. Yeah. If I, mean, I, if I don't give it too much thought. Yeah. And again, we had to, we had to drill in on this because there's something here for, you know, Daryl, obviously there's, and it has this new, his new like way of uh, leading. There's something here for Tactus and a changed person. There's something here for Mustang. There's something here for Pax, for Nyla, for Milia, like for all these other kids, they, they all kind of come together. The lessons of the past meeting the goals of the Institute are all kind of merging at this moment, making it uh, absolutely excellent. Uh, let's go ahead and take a quick break. We'll come back and we'll finish up uh, the second part of the episode. Sounds good. And we're back. We uh, took a fun little uh, break. We talked about the Beatles. We did. <laughs> and, uh, so we wanted we butted up against Chapter Forty One with our Adrius episode last week, mm-hmm. and we wanted to kind of talk about the last three chapters. We wanted to go back and talk about Gold Daryl, which is what we did. That's in Chapter Thirty Six. If you want to go read that part, uh, it's the last few pages. But there's not a lot of character analysis or kind of character things we can talk about because the last three chapters of the book, Forty Two. 43 and 44 are just pure nonstop action. Oh, yeah. And we wanted to highlight those awesome action scenes and kind of our favorite parts. And kind of, we're not going to necessarily put a bow on the whole book. We're going to do that next week's episode and kind of finalize our our thoughts on uh, our um, Red Rising in total. But we wanted to talk about some of this action. Um, What we do, uh, what we're going to do, excuse me, is we're going to have three individual highlights apiece talking about the end of the book from the last three chapters. So, Jeremy. What's your first highlight you want to talk about in regards to this? All right. My first highlight is a quote. And this occurs when they are essentially 
storming Olympus, running through hallways, taking out proctors, attacking them naked in baths and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> and the quote is this. Funny thing, watching gods realize they've been mortal all along. Mm -hmm. And at face value, like a lot of quotes, you know, it, it does mean one thing. But I, I, I got to thinking about this quote. And to me, it's like this, this miniature scale model of, um, and I actually looked up what the most common scale model is. And that's nice. 170 second. Okay, cool. We're not going to go into why, yeah. but it is. So I, I just see it as like this 170 second model of the greater story, you know. And again, you're in Olympus, and these, these proctors are genuinely surprised that these children have somehow gotten up to their little cloud city and are attacking them and taking them out. Yeah. And I mean, they're just shocked. They're like, you can't do this. Yeah. Like it, and it's happening anyway, you know? Yeah. And the same thing kind of occurs, again, in that greater series. You have the gold machine who really truly believes that they are gods that they're far above the other colors mm -hmm. and they're being toppled by a red yeah. and it's kind of obviously it's not a not a quote or anything like that but it's a general sentiment of like no you can't do this like yeah. we're we're gold i i thought of this like the real world example of this okay let's say you're in an elementary school and all of a sudden the kindergartners just all of a sudden <laughs> bust out a bunch of weapons <laughs> and just start taking down the whole school like over the adults the sixth graders like you know it just, that's exactly what's happening. It's like the model of what's happening. It's like students are, they got a hold of weapons and grab boots and they're, they're raging and it's, it's a dope moment, but it's also crazy if you think about it, like the whole kindergartner thing, because that's really kind of the equivalent of it, I guess, in a way. Would you say so? Or is that too crazy? I, I don't know, but yeah. what I do know. That's is what I think of it as. We got to pitch that to some studio as a beef, like horror <laughs> flick though. That sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> Kindergartners take over school. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, my first uh, highlight is yeah, is, go to yours. Um, Pierce Brown and his kind of his writing style and how it it shifts towards the back end of the book, but specifically goes into Overdrive, uh, the last three chapters. So you have this. Um, you're obviously always in Darrow's head, and that's how you're seeing the story. And we know Darrow now. By the end of this book, we really know him. We know what his mission is. We know his kind of him as a personality, and so. Pierce Brown doesn't need to interject a lot of internal exposition. Mm -hmm. He kind of actually puts you in warp speed in the sentence structure. Um, so you're just getting these quick cut thoughts or this, like if we're to use like a musical term, like staccato, like it's just like that, 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 that. And it's really cool because everything feels so hyper and like intense. And like Olympus, like you said, like he's just giving you the exact things you need. That's always giving you. He doesn't need to tell you if he's running by a painting on the wall, he can just say painting smeared of blood. Like that's it. It's mm -hmm. not which he doesn't, but I'm saying that's an example of a hypothetical example. And so I'll read a couple sentences that are like from the last couple chapters and you can kind of feel like this quick paced, like staccato rhythm to them. Yeah, for sure. So you have like, I stink. My cloak stinks like the dead thing that it is. It hangs limp behind me while stained with a proctor's blood. I pull up the hood. We all do. We look like wolves and we smell blood. That's all periods. There's no commas. There's no like the sentence is like a couple words end, two words end, three words end. Like, and there's another one when he's talking about why he like duels Proctor Mercury. Right. He's like, I bow, period. Mercury curtsies, period. I like this Proctor, period. It's just like quick snapshots of everything because Pierce wants you to feel like the emotion and the urgency and the the bigness of these like uh the last few chapters so he kind of he kind of thrusts um 
everything forward in a really hyper way. It's it's really fun to read that way. Yeah. So well, it's not even like unprecedented. It, I'd say it's it's pretty rare um, where this book, you know, Pierce chose to write it in this first person present tense. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no kind of third party narrator kind of telling a backstory of what happened years ago. And I'm wondering, like to your point, is is seeing it through Darrow's eyes and kind of being inside of him and getting that same adrenaline hit and that testosterone's pumping and, and things are going. And so you're, you're not getting that, that scene described, you mm-hmm. know, like you said, with a picture and things, but instead you're, you're literally like blinders on down the hallway running. I mean, do you think that's like kind of part and parcel of what you're talking about? Yeah. And I think that it's really intentional. Like it, it's like Pierce Brown wants you to feel like, I guess like the adrenaline and the emotion of it all. And he uses it in different ways and not just like a hyper emotion, but like, even in poignancy, he does this too, because he just wants to kind of put you in Darrow's brain. And that's why I love this book so much. I love being with Darrow. Like, he's like he's such a good hang for like this whole 44 chapters. Maybe not the beginning as much for some, like myself included, but the last half of this book, heck yeah. Like I like feeling what he feels. I like going through what he's going through to this kind of first person, present tense vibe. So yeah, I love it. Um, highlight number two for you. All right. So this one's simple, just two words with an exclamation mark, and that's mm-hmm. Roke lives. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was so happy. I I even lost track of him at some point in the book. And, yeah. and, and I mean, you can't say I totally forgot about him, but I he slipped my mind. I wasn't really thinking about him until, you know, this little skinny guy comes back and kind of hugs Darrow. And, that moment made me cry. Yeah. I it, cried. It was super emotional. Yeah. And, and especially since we're talking about the scope of the first book. And first book. Yes. Roke is one of my favorite characters. I mean, mm-hmm. the poet's amazing. And this was just a big payoff moment for me where I'm like, he's not dead in a ditch. Yeah. You know what? I don't even know what happened to him. I don't know where he was, but I love that he's back. He's alive and he's with us. I've told you this story once. I'll tell it to you again. And then uh, people can listen to it as well. It's, I guess, a little embarrassing, but it's okay. So the first time both of us encountered Red Rising was via audiobook. Uh, I'm staying at home with my newborn son. I'm I do this. I've listened to the book while I'm doing like he's sleeping on the floor, which most of what they do most of the time or in his <laughs> crib or wherever I'm doing chores. So this chore I was doing was I was doing laundry and I was taking uh, clothes from the washing machine to the dryer. I'm sitting on this little step stool doing that transfer. And I get to this part of the book and. You know, that that moment like is kind of. Pierce Brown puts a couple sentences in the way of revealing that it's Roke and then that that young young man hu- hugging him. So there's this young man who comes up who like he describes that he can feel his bones like because he's so like malnourished and kind of like just uh, not taken care of because he he was in House Mars was getting wrecked. Right. And I was like, it's Roke. I'm like whispering <laughs> out loud, like it's Roke. It has to be Roke. And it was. And I was just like head down, just like a little some tears. I was just so happy that he was. He was back. That payoff was immense. Um, so I'm all there. I'm all the way there with you. Um, I know there's complicated feelings about rope going mm-hmm. forward in the story, but again, we're taking the book one approach only, and so that's where we're gonna leave it. Um, my number two, yeah, what's yours? Is uh, Pierce Brown leaning into the realness of what the institute meant by the end of it? You have um, in the at the end of most books, there's some, especially when your protagonist wins. There's celebration, like huzzah, like pizza party, like let's go. <laughs> <laughs> but that is not what happens, like at all. Like um, 
there's this little monologue here that I want to capture that uh, Darrow talks about. And it's in its internal dialogue, excuse me. So let me read that real fast. I look at my sling blade and wonder how useless it has just become. It's as though we're supposed to congratulate one another, cheer or something, but there is only silence, a hollow silence for victors and losers all. I am empty. What do I do now? There was always a fear, always a concern, always a reason to hoard weapons and food, always a quest or trial. Now, nothing. Just the wind sweeping in over our battlefield, an empty battlefield filled with only echoes of things lost and learned, friends, lessons. Soon it will be a memory. I feel like a lover has died. I yearn to cry, feel hollow, adrift. I'm going to take a drink of water. You don't have to edit that out, Tim. Let's go for it. Um, so that, yeah, like this, you, he could easily have made this something so, to celebrate. Like, because your protagonist wins. And there's, it's really gratifying. You know, I could use that word satisfying earlier. Mm-hmm. It feels like that too, because Mustang and Daryl win. And it, yeah, like we're, we're ready to go. Like, well, give me the next book. Let's make it happen. For sure. But it's not that. Like, the Institute was a nightmare. Like, when you look at it in full, and it kind of goes back to that, the argument or the ongoing argument that Cassius and Daryl had, where Cassius saw it as a school, always, you know, you, we came to the school as, uh, you know, you came to the school as prince, as then you became a beast. Like, right. even in that moment, Cassius is still holding on to the idea that this is just a school. And Daryl, from the moment he stepped in the passage, he knew exactly what it was. It was war. And so, it, Pierce Brown is not describing the end of a school year. He's describing the end of a war. And to his credit, he leans all the way into that and makes you feel and resonate with all those and wrestle with all those emotions rather than the celebration of it all. And I, I appreciate that he did that. Like he didn't kind of strafe away from like the bigger feel. Yeah, I think you're right in kind of pointing out that dichotomy, <clears throat> excuse me, that dichotomy between what they thought it was going to be, you know, this school mm-hmm. and, and what it really was. And it kind of reminds me of those those memes that are kind of side by side, you know, the expectation yeah. and the reality. And it's like, you know, one's like grandma in the bandstands at high school graduation with an air horn, you know, uh-huh. rooting you on. Yeah. But in reality, it's this <laughs> barren wasteland of death. You know, yeah. I mean, just grandma is like, yeah, you did it, son. You graduated. <laughs> but it's it, but it's just completely different than the expectation. Is, yes. I guess what you're saying for sure. Uh, let's go with your number three, your, th- your, th- your last highlight. All right. This is an important one. Mm-hmm. This is Mustang isn't a turncoat. Yes. I was so nervous, man. Yes. I was Deeply, deeply worried. We okay, all good. Were. Because I bought that line, hook, line, and sinker. Mm-hmm. I, I was totally on the track that this was happening, that Mustang was going to Adrius. They were going to team up together and try to take over the world. Uh-huh. And um, I started even looking at, you know, be it the audiobook, you know, you kind of look at timestamps, like how much time is left? Or, or you, you get like a caliper or a ruler and you're yeah. like, it's only like a millimeter of pages left. Like, yes, this can't be i mean are we really going to leave the first book off in the middle of the institute and the second book is going to kind of pick up on this big war between the augustus twins and and the reaper that would have sucked oh i I think so too (laughs) and but instead luckily you know mustang kind of comes back to the fanfare and and just kind of throws her Mm -hmm. naked brother at his feet which is wild and weird but yeah but you know what i'm going to overlook the weirdness of that i'm just gonna be like (laughs) She didn't trade on him. Like she's still yeah. good. So yeah, no, it's we we all thought that um, we all thought that that was like kind of what was coming. I mean, I bought it too. I was I was mad at Mustang. I wasn't like sad. I think you said you were like sad by it. I was mad at her. I was like, you tricked me. Like and Daryl, you know, 
I'm the reader. You you fooled me. Like, and how dare you make a fool of me? But even though, <laughs> whatever, yeah, that's just my, that was my feelings, even though they're ridiculous at the time. Uh, but I totally see that. Yeah, I was, I was sad because, I mean, she's my favorite character. She yeah. always has been. So. Yeah. Um, my number three and my final is this quote by Nero Augustus. Steel is power. Money is power. But of all the things in all the world's words are power. And what this kind of like, I think what Pierce Brown slipped this in for to say to Darrow, because this is the conversation at the end of the book that kind of dominates most of the last chapter is the conversation between Nero and Darrow is he's actually validating Eo's weapon. He says all the way back in chapter five, six that, you know, is that all you have is your weapon kind of just a song. And now he said that obviously to kind of beat her down or beat the beat down the emotion of that moment for all the reds there and hers. But he's actually, and now he's actually telling Daryl, like she had the most valuable weapon and of all time, like words are power. And you see that, you see that the fruition of that, because the sons of Aries, from what we know, they didn't seem to be a very successful organization before they added two things to like their kind of their repertoire. Yeah. It does seem that way. Yeah. It's that they added Eo's song and her video and put it all over the place. And they added Darrow, her husband, and built him into like a god of war. And they didn't have much going on before that. But it starts with Eo. She was the one that uh, kicked it off with that song and using her words as power. And I guess going back to the top of the episode, you can say Darrow does that too. He actually takes an action just like Eo does, you know, but he uses his words in that moment at the top of chapter 36 um, or the end of chapter 36, excuse me. And it's like, are we, we're all one body now. We're all on the same page. Like words are powerful in this world. And it's cool that Nero uh, is validating that to uh, who he doesn't know, but validating that to the character that was the husband. Yeah, you, you absolutely have like the better of the quotes here from Nero. But even if you kind of roll back to the beginning of the Institute, uh, Nero is addressing all the kids and, and he brings EO up, right? And he's just kind of bagging on her and talking about how she's howling and things like that. But yeah, at the same time, it's the same sort of nod. Like he's recognizing that this kind of thing can't be let like blossom. You know, it has yeah. to be like subverted and put down and because it is powerful and it can become like Nero's not an idiot. Like, yeah, he's a smart dude and he, he really understands this. And that's why you and I actually like him uh, kind of, you know, we don't embrace him as a character we like enjoy. Yeah. But it's like we respect him, I guess, mm -hmm. if that's the better way to put yeah, it. That's fair. Because he is smart. He understands like. He understands like the complexities of the world um and and even though he's deeply flawed and, and kind of weird and he's on the other side of the wrong side of history you know he still like is he's able to see like what's valuable what's not valuable uh even if he's pretty evil uh, but yeah okay well that's uh what's that what's that for the highlights yes and we're gonna do a lightning round which this yeah. will be the slowest <laughs> lightning round in human history this is how we're gonna wrap up the podcast with the, the a very <laughs> slow like but I'll be the lightning and you can be the thunder. Oh, I like that. Yeah. How about Thank that? Thank you. Or my brooding friend. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, is there anything in book one that you would change? Yes. Go for it. I would actually change Pax's death. I'd, I'd keep him around. Yeah. And the way I came to this conclusion is a hard one because there's other characters like Julian. Julian's awesome. Mm -hmm. and, but we covered this at length in our Julian episode. Like there are certain ramifications to these kind of changes, right? You like, you change one thing in time and it affects so much. Yeah. And we made a whole case about what, what could change with Julian. So 
to me, it's like, if you take one of the most favorite characters that did die, and that's Pax, in ratio to the least impactful, I mean, I hate to say it like that because it sounds like I'm putting him down, but yeah, I'm not. I get, I get you though. He just, he, the story doesn't change, right? And we can have our Pax back. Mm-hmm. And we can have so many more moments with him and time with him that we missed because of his death. Like, that, that's kind of how I came to that conclusion. I think like he doesn't, yeah, you're right. He doesn't like impact the greater story. Like you use the word in that uh, Julian episode is like ripple effects. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't really have a lot of those ripple effects. The, the death of him is a really emotional one. That's what it is. It's like this striking this emotional heavy chord um, and kind of a sacrifice for Darrow's unwillingness to put the jackal down in that moment. Um, so he, pays, he has to pay that price. But it is sad, and, and I think that having Pax back would be dope. I think that would be it'd add a whole cool like vibe to the story that we didn't get. Um, you can actually listen to Pierce Brown talk about that on a uh, YouTube video <laughs> uh, and his plans for Pax. If you go and try to find where he spoke at a DC bookstore in 2019, Washington DC bookstore, I should say. Um, for me, uh, as far as like a thing I'd change, this might be a little controversial, but I would take out some of the tightest chapters. Uh, I think that you go in the middle of the book, you know, about chapters 20 to 25, they just get a little long, they get a little dry. Um, you, I think you can establish a lot of the same things that are being established uh, with like three chapters versus five. And um, I'm totally comfortable with that. And, uh, and again, it's not, Pierce Brown's, all these books to us are A's or A pluses. Right. For sure. And I think that you know, uh, this is the one critique, one of the very, I think maybe two or three critiques I've ever had about a Pierce Brown book, but that's about it. Like I just would cut down a little bit of this, uh, this, these tightest moments. Yeah. I think when you're kind of looking on, on the socials or, or like bookstagram accounts and people are kind of reviewing this book, you kind of get a similar opinion or critique about either the carving or these, these sections of chapters, which you're talking about now. Yeah. And I think when you on first read, those two things can seem like a bit of a slog. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you read back second, third, fourth, fifth time, that carving is essential. Like you can't yeah. really, can't really cut it out, cut it down. You don't want it to turn into a rocky montage or anything like yes. that, like silly. Um, but, but to a degree, I, I, I agree. I mean, I'm a little more of a boring guy, so I can deal <laughs> with that kind of, that kind of slog yeah. uh, pretty well. I'm robust, but but I get it. I get what you're saying. On the first two reads, I actually did think the same thing about the carving, but now I've grown to appreciate it because if you think about it, like it's like Darrow's not a hot pocket. You can't just throw him in the <laughs> microwave. You can't just throw him in the microwave and be like, he's a gold now. Like it's like that's not the way it works. Like you have to like let that that process story-wise needs to mature. He needs to like learn how to use his body. He needs to become a gold. And that's not something you could just do overnight or like the microwave analogy, but you don't really need, I think that's, you don't need to burden or kind of be like, kind of make that I burden. That's way too strong a word. You don't need to like, kind of like make those chapters with Titus so long, but you, I think you can have all the same effects of what the character brings. Just cut it down a little bit. Okay. Um, top five favorite characters from book one. You're up first. Who would you like to go with first? If you're number one. All right. We'll, we'll try to go a little bit faster because we have talked at length a lot about a lot of these people yeah. and our opinions on them. So number one, of course, for me, is Mustang. Stangarang. She's amazing. She's genius. I love her to death. And she's my number one. Who's your number two? I'm going to get you go first. Oh, okay, cool. So number two for me is Darrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, like we, this is what the chapter, this is what this episode rather is about. Mm-hmm. It is about how he came up. And, and like you, 
I didn't like him much at the beginning, right? We we talk about that at length in our first episode, actually. Yeah. But boy, he redeems himself here. Yes. I yes. mean, huge. And it is that metamorphosis. I I love that third stage of Darrow mm-hmm. where Mustang gets a hold of him. And it's one of the reasons I love Mustang, by the way. She gets a hold of him, she teaches him, she brings him along, and he just runs with the concepts. And, and then and then you have this chapter, right? Yeah. And it's just incredible. So Darrow. Number three, then. All right. So number three is Cassius. I love Cassius. Yeah. So call it 2A, 2B or something like that. Because okay. they are they are really close to me. Yeah. I mean, I like them for different reasons and, and what Cassius adds to the story. Uh, ben helped us explore that at length. Yeah, so. that, shout out to Ben. Hallerpod. For sure. Oh. After Cassius, <laughs> number four for me comes in at Roke. Mm-hmm. Again, in the scope of the first book, I love the poet. Yeah. He is... He's awesome. Just his temperament, I think, you know, kind of really differently written. Like, mm-hmm. re- like Pierce Brown made him so unique within the story because it's a whole nother voice, another like another side of gold that you don't see a lot within the Institute coming in and, and having a complete uniqueness to him. It's it's cool. I think like for me, I like dynamics, mm-hmm. you know, again, we're talking in musical terminology here and classical music really encompasses this. And we, we actually used Mustang's humor in comparison to Severo. Both are amazing, right? But mm-hmm. it's it's the two of them working together in tandem that gives you dynamics. And I, I think Roke adds that same sort of <laughs> dynamic as, as far as the personality goes. Uh, and rounding out my top five is Severo himself. Yeah. Um, what, what can you say? The guy's crass. He's funny as all get out. Yeah. He's just a little goblin and I love him. I think you're going to have the more popular top five. I Thank don't, you. I don't think that people are going to necessarily <laughs> dig mine as much. Um, I'm going to go a little quicker because you talked about some of the characters. For sure. So uh, Gold Darrow or the Reaper at number one, hands down. One uh, B because I two, but one B Mustang. Three is Dancer. That's why I'm going to differ from you here a little bit. I, I love Dancer. Not in the story as long as maybe you, even I would have liked, but the the what he does for the story is huge and, and awesome. Um, number four. This is the controversial one. I put Adrius at number four. And uh, I'll have to defend that just for a second. Goal. Uh, <laughs> I do not like him at all. I all don't. Right. Not He's not my guy by no means. But uh, as far as just a literary character, fascinating, interesting, fun in a really twisted way. Yeah. And I did also say in that episode um, that we did last week about him is that I think that if you like Darrow as much as someone does, like I do rather, uh, you also kind of appreciate it, not like, but appreciate the jackal because mm-hmm. they have. You said at the end you called you called him the literary foil. So there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of interwoven traits between the two characters. So he does make my top five towards the bottom because of that. And then I said it on the Julian episode. Julian is my number five. I mean, like barely in the book. I like this choice, but I I love the kid. He's a sweetheart. Um, and I I. If I could have a different version of Red Rising where he lives and keeps going with Darrow, I would, um, I might choose that version of the book. But um, which leads us to the last question we're going to do. Let's um, do it. If you could have a version of Red Rising from another POV, who would you choose? So it's not, again, let me actually give the rules for okay, this question. Yeah, for sure. Um, so it's another version, not like an actual like new replacing the old Red Rising. So you have the Pierce Brown canonical red rising and then we're at we're asking Dar- uh, pierce brown in this moment to create a second version from another pov yes. that's what like this hypothetical version so who is your hypothetical version going to be uh portraying i want to see quinn's pov yeah. for the first book shout out to quinn 
I like it. And we're spoiled, right, for down the road. So people who haven't read the second trilogy, you won't understand, and that's fine. But he's able to use minor characters, like Lyria is a great example, to really explore these amazing characters, the telemanuses. Yeah. And the way that she can kind of interact and do that is, is just intricate. And, and something that the major character, the telemanus family within themselves wouldn't be able to accomplish, yeah. you know? And so I like the idea of taking this, this Quinn character, this minor character in the first book, and she's going to open up a lot of things, the application process, the, the testing. Drafting. The drafting. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you could go super in-depth with that. She's a mid-draft, so she's going to be aware of all the other drafts kind of going first, right? So you could play with that a lot. Yeah. And then one of the biggest things she's going to be able to do is fill in that massive missing gap of when, uh, after Darrow gets run through, right, with yeah. the sword, and he's off being convalesced by uh by mustang yes because a lot of people are like what the hell happened here like, <laughs> where's you know you get a snapshot you come back to house mars for like a second and mm -hmm. you're greeted by you know you not darrow is but you the reader are greeted by pollux quinn roke and then you get named cassius spits in his face but you have no clue what happened during that whole time right but quinn would be able to fill in all that like so that'd be really absolutely cool. yeah um yeah so that's a really good pick i actually when you told me that you were going to Pick Quinn. I was like super into that. I'm gonna pick Adrius. Oh man, it's weird. It's twisted. Oh man. I want to see up twice. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see what he was like. Even the beginning of the book, like pre-institute, like what was he? What was his life like? What was it? The rhythm of his day, and then what was the testing like for him? Like what was the draft process? Where did he get drafted? We have no clue. I want to see that. I want to see early House Pluto. I want to see the um him like uh what was it like. The cave in? Yeah, I want to see him like deliberately push the cave down. Uh, and then uh yeah, I want to see all I want to see all that. And I want to do it like with putting like my hands in front of my eyes while I'm reading <laughs> the book and like kind of like poking one eye out, it's looking like, down the page. It's like dark age meets red rising. Yeah. Um, kinda. Yeah, yeah, it would. Um, so I would I'd like to see that version of that just to kind of and again, if he is the literary foil of the story, like I would like that accompaniment uh, that accompaniment piece to Red Rising. So yeah, I hear you. Let's do some uh, announcements and some shout outs and then we'll actually like fully wrap up. Okay. Announcement number one, we in two weeks from uh, this episode, we're going to have a Q&A episode. So please send us questions. And those questions can be about anything. Like uh, we want book one questions as much as we can get and we'll read those probably first. But if you have questions for Jeremy, Tim, myself, Philip, uh, go for it. Uh, about our process, about Red Rising, about how we make this podcast, or if you have questions about books two through five, we're, we're down. Like we want to get to as many questions as possible. So the email is hailreaperpod at gmail.com. <laughs> you like looked like you're like, huh, I don't know what the email is. Like, yeah, you, you frightened me. <laughs> uh, the email is hailreaperpod at gmail.com. It's in the show description notes too. For sure. So you can always just click on that and it will take you right to the email. Um, the second one is that we've got a lot of new patrons lately. Mm -hmm. uh, that's been fun. It's been great. And we've been interacting with them on Discord. Uh, we've been interacting with them on our uh, our Patreon website. And if you want to be a part of the Patreon, uh, it's a buck. It is a dollar a month to come on board. You get bonus content, at least one episode a month. Tim made a really sick uh, video like version of our podcast last, uh, last month. And it, it was really fun to do. Like mm -hmm. we had a blast doing this. So um, we're going to be just kind of keep rolling those out and we want to actually give more special content to our patrons as we go 
in the form of other episodes and, and a peek behind the scenes of like what we're doing next and so on and so forth. You want to add to that? You kind of look like you want to say something. No, I, I just, again, we'll just say that, uh, you know, the money enables us. It's not something, it's not a profit model. We yeah. put it right back into the show. Yeah, everything, every cent goes mm-hmm. back into the podcast, our production and, costs. And then some. <laughs> yeah, our production costs for sure. Um, two shout outs. Uh, PB. Uh, I didn't ask to use her real name, but her nickname is PB. And if you follow her on Instagram, you will be rewarded. Your vision and your brain will be rewarded um, because she makes the coolest Red Rising art. Uh, we've been in con- conversation with her about her process and her art, but uh, she does character portraits that are just unreal. They gorgeous. Look, they look, yeah, they're absolutely gorgeous is a great word to use. So uh, shout out to PB Doodles. So to follow her on Instagram is pb.doodles. Um, or at pb.doodles. So uh, follow her. And I actually talked to her today. She's uh, looking to uh, get prints going to sell. So people can buy her art, frame it. it it's like we're, we got we got one of our uh, pieces um, of Victra. And we're going to hang it in our studio. And we're like stoked to put it up. So um, her Victra portrait's awesome. And she's Victra is my second favorite character in the book. So uh, all the series rather. So I'm, I'm pumped. Last shout out. Timbo. Our guy, Tim, our producer. Yeah, yeah. He released a new single on Friday from his project, which is called Sev. Every, uh, and every episode you see his, um, his, uh, is a link to his Spotify page. And he's just, re- he's writing the, like the coolest crap, like uh, lo-fi, like amazing. Like I, I actually like to listen to it in the morning as I'm waking up, like lo-fi, chill, great vibes, good for studying, good for nighttime, like relaxing, good for just sitting and drinking some tea or some coffee. Like, Good for just like, and if you're like an like a big like you're really into like high end production and like just really like love like sonic stuff. Like he has so many layers to his music that uh, should be appreciated. So uh, we're uh, we're giving Tim a shout out. Uh, it's beautiful music. What's up? Yeah, I have a shout out as well. Oh, what's so up? in the Mustang episode, I thought I shouted my brother out. Oh, you, you thought you did? I thought I did. Yeah. I, I did say my brother gave me the Ender right reference after after I missed it, but. I got a rash of crap from him for not giving him a proper shout out. Okay. So Colin Tuttle stationed out of Everett, Washington, serving our country in the Navy. <laughs> I love you, brother. You're amazing. Proper shout out done. There you go. Okay, cool. This is the longest episode of Hail Reaper that they'll probably ever will be. <laughs> and we're sorry if you had to, you felt like you felt obligated to listen to this whole thing, but we had fun doing it and we wanted to kind of cover the entire back half of the book. So shout outs to all of you listeners and Hail Reaper. Hail Reaper. Peace. Thanks to Pierce Brown for writing the beloved Red Rising series. A special thanks to Tim, our engineer and sound designer. Check out his music on Spotify by looking for the link in our podcast description. And thanks to all our contributors who made this show possible. If you enjoy what you hear, please take a moment to rate and review us on your respective podcast platforms. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Hail Reaper Pod. And you can email us at hailreaperpod at gmail.com If you'd like to support us, please take a look on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Hail Reaper. Until next time, for my co-host, Philip, I'm Jeremy. Thanks for listening.